All right, we are in James chapter five. James chapter five, verses uh, one through 12. So if you'll turn there, we are, um, we're at the very tail end of our series on James, Friends with God. And we've got one more week before we begin in Genesis. So I'm, uh, I'm enjoying this and also really looking forward to this next season in Genesis. So far in James, we have seen James take on the role of sage, giving wisdom for how to live as friends with God. And then we've seen him take on the role of of pastor, encouraging us to put our faith into action, to bear up under suffering, and to love the Lordship of Jesus. And now James is taking up the mantle of prophet. The main role of the prophets of the Lord in the Old Testament was to call the people of God to faithfulness to God. And that often took a particular shape. That call to be faithful to the Lord uh, takes on a shape with two aspects very often. First, the prophet cries, woe. Woe to the people who are far from God, who live in rebellion against God. Woe to people who are friends of the world because the day of the Lord is coming. And the second aspect is the prophet cries comfort. Comfort to the people who love the Lord, who wait on the Lord, people who are friends of God because the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is a major theme in the Bible all throughout. It develops through the Old Testament. It kind of picks up, it accumulates weightiness as you go through the Bible and it comes to the kind of fullness of that in Revelation. And the first installment, if you will, of that day of the Lord was the cross uh, when Jesus died and was raised again. And the final installment of the day of the Lord will be when Jesus returns to make all things new. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment and a day of salvation. So it's like Noah's flood. Well, it wasn't his flood, you know what I mean? It's like the flood in Noah's day. It was judgment to all the wicked of the world, but it was a moment of salvation and deliverance for Noah and his family. It was woe and comfort. So like the prophets of the Lord before him and like Jesus in his prophetic ministry, because Jesus did this as well, James is taking up the mantle of prophet, proclaiming both woe and comfort. So now let's read uh, James chapter five, verses one through 12 with those two aspects in mind. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, 
being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of God. So here's the heart of this passage from James 5. It's comfort from the Lordship of Jesus in the face of oppression and suffering and abuse. That's what this is really getting at. Comfort from the Lordship of Jesus in the face of oppression, suffering, and abuse. And we get a really clear picture from James on what the oppression that these poorer Christians that were dispersed throughout the nations, the sort of oppression they were dealing with. So the rich Romans would come in and they would hire poor Christians and other poor sojourners as day laborers in their fields, doing all of the hard work of the field while the rich person kind of reaps the reward and the profits and gets to stay in the, in the shade. And, and the, the rich people would say, hey, I'll pay you, you know, 20 bucks at the end of this day. Um, and then they'd come at the end of the day and go, I forgot to go to the ATM. I'm a little short, sorry. You know, I'll have to get you back another day. And that would happen again and again. And James says, that's fraud. You're committing fraud. You're holding back these wages. It's oppression. It's injustice. It's abuse. These rich people were laying up riches for themselves on earth where moth and rust destroy, as our Lord said. And they're doing it at the expense of the poor on the backs of the sojourner. So what is the Christian response then to that kind of oppression and abuse or to any kind of oppression and abuse? Well, James says, first it's to receive comfort in the Lordship of Jesus. And then it's to be patient. Um, And before we go any further, I wanna just take a moment to address patience and abuse particularly, okay? James is not telling people who are being abused to just stick it out and be patient. That's not what he's saying. Staying in a place of abuse is not honoring to God. It's not obedience to God. It's really dangerous. And the Lord wants your safety. So I don't want you to think that that the Bible or I am saying in any way that if someone is in an abusive relationship, they have to just stick it out and stay in a place of danger. That is not what I'm saying. That's not the kind of patience that James is talking about. When Jesus began his public ministry, he stood up in the synagogue and read from the Isaiah scroll. And this is what he read. It's about himself. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Liberty for the oppressed. Freedom from oppression and abuse is part of Jesus's gospel ministry. So if you are in an abusive situation, you know someone who is, 
please counsel them to leave that situation as safely and quickly as possible. And if you've left a situation in the past, please know this, that God does not stand in judgment of that decision. Um, If it's a marriage, an abusive partner has broken the covenant of marriage. You are not held accountable as the one leaving in that situation. If that's you, if that's something that you need to talk to somebody about, please come find me or send me an email at some point and we can you know, have, have a more meaningful conversation around that. It's a big topic, it's a sensitive topic, but I didn't wanna pass on without addressing that. So James is not teaching us how to be patient as we suffer abuse. He's teaching us this, how to be patient in a world full of oppression and abuse. How are we gonna stick it out in this? How are we gonna just continue on without getting mad at God, frankly? If this kind of oppression is so common that he writes about it 2000 years ago and still today we're all like, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. What kind of patience do we need for that? But what we're focusing on this morning isn't what James wants us to do. This isn't an application heavy sermon or an application heavy text. It's about what James wants us to receive because James, God's heart for us today, I believe is for us to receive comfort in a world of abuses and suffering from the Lordship of Jesus. How can we receive comfort like that in a world like this? Well, we have to know two things. First, you're rich in Christ. And second, Christ is coming back. Those are our two points today. So number one, you are rich in Christ. You may or you may not be poor in the world's eyes, but if you believe that Jesus died and rose again to save you from your sins and make you a friend of God, then you are unfathomably rich in Christ. Let's read verses two to four again. And listen for, we're gonna talk about three kinds of wealth. This is in the indictment against the rich, the unbelieving rich. And he talks about three kinds of of wealth here. Starting in verse two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Okay, so the three kinds of treasure that James deals with and points out are garments, gold, and grain. That's a nice preacherly alliteration, right? Clothes, treasures, and harvests, crops, fruit. The friends of the world who oppress the poor, James says they're just fattening their hearts for the day of slaughter. They're accumulating all of these things for themselves. Their love for the clothes and the treasure and the grain has consumed them and is consuming them and will actually stand as a witness against them of their oppression in the day of judgment. So these these wicked oppressors are looking at the poor Christians and they're saying, look, I've got all the garments, I've got all the gold and I've got all the grain. What do you have? Nothing. You're, you're really here to advance my bank account. You're, you're here to, to pad my wallet. That's your job. I'm the rich and you're the poor. This is how the world works, but they're so very wrong. You have riches 
in Christ more than you can imagine. Everyone takes comfort and pleasure in their wealth. That's not just what the rich do. That's not what unbelievers do. Everyone takes pleasure and comfort from the things that are most precious to them, the things of value that you have. But there is only one kind of wealth that you can take comfort in that won't betray you in the end. So let's think for a moment about the Christian's riches, our clothes, our treasure, and our crops. So first of all, clothes or garments. Paul says in Galatians 3, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So when we come into fellowship with God, it's as if we are clothed in in filthy rags because of our sin. And you're in the presence of a great king. It's not appropriate clothing, right? That's the image. But when we believe in Jesus for our righteousness, Jesus takes off our filthy rags and puts them on himself. And he takes off his glorious royal robes and puts it on us. So when God looks at us, he sees only the righteousness of his son. No more dirt and no more shame. Look at Zechariah 3, uh, verses 3 through 5. This is a vision that the prophet Zechariah had of the high priest in his day named Joshua. He says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, not what you want to be wearing before the angel of the Lord. Filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is like a great inversion of the Jacob and Esau story from Genesis. It's like reaching into that story and pulling it inside out. So remember, Isaac was was getting very old. His eyesight is dimming and it's time to bless his sons and pass on this promise of Abraham, his father, and the inheritance, all of the wealth that Isaac has accumulated. And of course, that blessing is to go to his firstborn, Esau. That's the way it worked. The firstborn gets the inheritance and the blessing but Jacob puts on Esau's clothes and goes before the father who then is deceived and blesses him, gives him the wealth, gives him the promise of Abraham because he's dressed as his older brother. And in a subversive, glorious twist, we enact that same story. As we're united to Christ by faith, the reality which baptism points to, we dress in our older brother's clothes. And then we go into the presence of our father and receive the blessing, the wealth, and the inheritance as if we were the older brother himself. God, the garments, the wealth of your garments in Christ comes down to this. God treats you like you're Jesus. That's incredible. 
That's why Paul said in Galatians, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. We just pass over the word heirs. No, 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 that means you're inheriting everything. (laughs) You are unfathomably rich in Christ because you are clothed in Christ and have been given the inheritance of God. That's garments. Let's think about treasure, gold and silver. Jesus said in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The reality is all of the world's goods are fading away. None of it will last. It's all depreciating. The United States left the gold standard in 1971. And ever since then, there's not been a fixed value of gold behind our printed dollars. And what has happened to the dollar since? We've printed more and more and more. The value goes down and down and down and inflation goes up and up. Everything's depreciating. That's just a picture of it that is really tangible in our bank accounts and budgets each month. But we already see that our riches don't last. In the end, it will all be gone. And no earthly riches will be impressive or comforting when the king returns. None of it. We're going to be bragging about our gold and he's going to come and pave the streets with it. That's not impressive to him. Jesus said to lay up treasure in heaven. In other words, there is treasure which never depreciates. There is treasure which will always be glorious and comforting and pleasurable. And this treasure is so wonderful that it's worth leaving everything else behind. There is nothing that compares to this. Absolutely nothing. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells a parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven, well, it's like this. It's like a, it's like a merchant who goes around looking for really nice pearls. And then he finds a pearl of great value. He finds like one of really inestimable value. And he goes and leaves everything. He sells everything else he has, liquidates his inventory just to buy that one pearl. Paul got it. He found the one pearl of great value. He knew what the real treasure is. Look what he says in Philippians 3. This is after he's listed all of his accolades, all of the good things he's had to brag about in this world. He says, but whatever gain I had, whatever profit, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. The treasure, the one pearl is Christ. The treasure which nothing else can compare to. The thing worth leaving everything else behind is Jesus himself. We can count every treasure, every honor, every accolade of this world as junk. If only it means that we get that one thing if we get Christ himself. We read this last week as well, um, but Ray reminded me of it and it's been in my mind ever since. Ephesians 2, Paul gives us the reason why God saves us from your sins. I mean, do you ever wonder, why did Jesus die for me? Like, why for me? Why did he do that? Here's your answer. Ephesians 2 says, so that in the coming ages, 
he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus died for you and rose for you is so that he can spend the rest of eternity lavishing his riches of grace and kindness to you. So you are unfathomably rich in Christ because you have Christ. And in Christ, in Christ is the location of all God's blessings and the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us are located in Christ. That's your treasure. Lastly, in this section, um, the last wealth we're gonna think about is the grain or the crops, the harvest. The rich of the world were making their money from the harvest brought in by their poor day laborers. And they, they stocked their storehouses and felt really good about themselves because they could see their grain piling up and they're thinking, yeah, I've, I've gone to Patriot Supply and got my um, end of the world goods and they're in my nuclear bunker and nothing can touch me. Be- I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, nothing can touch me, right? I've, I've, got my, I've got my future secure. This is my security. Well, in Christ, you have a harvest too. You have future security. Whereas fire will come and burn up the silos of the wicked, your harvest will last into eternity. And it will, so it says that the harvest, the, the, the harvest itself and the wages they kept back are crying out as witness against the rich. Did you catch that in James 5? The harvesters cry out to the Lord and the wages and crops cry out as witness, as testimony against the rich oppressors. Well, our harvest testifies to us as well. Remember what James said in chapter three, he says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Harvest of righteousness. What crop could yield a sweeter reward? From one perspective then, you are a laborer in the Lord's fields. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. The Lord gives us this privilege then of bringing, I mean, what what did he mean by the harvest is plentiful? He meant there are souls to be saved, right? There's people to love into Jesus, to go preach the gospel to, to share our lives with, to humble ourselves for like Jesus did for us. The harvest is plentiful. We get the rich privilege of bringing back lost souls to Jesus and being a part of their salvation by God's grace. And he gives us the privilege of of ushering people into the kingdom of God. That's a harvest that endures forever. What could be better than that? What fruit could we want more? From another perspective, you know, so that's, you're a laborer in the Lord's field. But from another angle, you're a, you're a tree in the field of God. Because you're rooted in Christ and watered by his spirit's living waters, the spirit of God bears his fruit on your branches. That's what Paul means by the fruit of the spirit. You're like a tree 
and you're bearing fruit that you can't explain, right? You plant an apple tree, it's gonna, it's gonna bring apples out if you're lucky, right? But here you are, a human tree bringing out spirit fruit. That's the grace of God. And Paul says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. I probably said that one already. Self-control. It's all the best things. These fruits are meant to be enjoyed by us here and now, like treasure from heaven just brought down into our earthly mortal experience. Notice in verse seven of our passage, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Nathan helped me see this last night. That's treasure language, precious fruit of the earth. So whereas the wicked eagerly harvest their crops by the sweat of the poor to accumulate their treasure now, the children of God wait on the rains, knowing that when the Lord brings the rains, the yield will be more precious, more valuable than anything else in this world. So you are unfathomably rich in Christ because he is the Lord of a better field and he bears fruit in your life. So no, no matter how much money you, uh, you have or don't have, even if you've suffered abuse or oppression at the hands of the world, you can receive comfort from the Lordship of Jesus because of your clothes, your treasure, and your fruit. These are real things we get to enjoy right now, friends, no matter what is going on in our life. And there's one other crucial thing we need to see, one vital way that we can receive comfort from the Lordship of Jesus in the face of oppression and abuse. And that is number two, Christ is coming back. Let's read again from the second half of our passage, verses seven through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers. This is the comfort section. Remember woe and comfort? We've done the woe. That was the first part. Now this is the the comfort address of James. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The judge is returning. The judge is coming. He's at the door. So don't grumble about your circumstances to each other. The judge is right there. And don't be like the people who make plans and promises without considering the lordship of Christ. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. The judge is returning. And isn't it interesting that he doesn't say Jesus is coming back or the king is returning or the Lord is at hand. He calls him the judge. He emphasizes that. And he does it because he wants us to be comforted by knowing that Jesus is coming back in judgment. That should be a comfort to us. When we look at the abusers and the oppressors of this world, what do we really want but justice? 
Isn't that the thing we really ache for? Many of you have suffered wrongs that cannot be made right in this world. That's just a fact. And many of you have suffered in such a way that you don't feel like you can be made whole in this world. But the day of the Lord is coming. Jesus is coming back with justice for you in his right hand. In that day, we will look at the just judgments of Christ, our righteous judge, and we will be satisfied. Some of you have never been able to be fully satisfied. You will be. You will be made whole again. All wrongs will be set right. The wicked will receive their due and the oppressed and the abused will receive theirs. Remember, you get the inheritance of Christ. That's your due in Christ. All that is broken will be made whole. All shame will be radiantly redeemed into glory and dignity because Jesus is coming back as judge. That is terrifically good news. So what do we do then in light of the imminent return of Jesus? Well, we have to be patient. The world's not better yet. We must be patient. Verses seven and eight. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The Lord will send the rains. The earth will bear its precious fruit. We must only be patient and establish or strengthen our hearts in light of that truth. In other words, how do you establish your hearts at the coming of the Lord? You got to think about it. You got to face into it. Hold it in our minds. Talk about it with each other. Pray for it to come. Strengthen yourselves in the day of the Lord. Don't ignore it and just hope for, you know, tomorrow I'll sin a little less or I might feel a little sadder. Establish your hearts at the coming of the Lord. We do it together. That's part of being patient. Do you know the, the difference between patience and passivity? Passivity just waits around. Passivity says, Man, you know, let's see how this plays out. It's probably going to be all right in the end. It just sits around in activity. Patience waits on the Lord actively, strengthening our hearts for a reason. Okay, so passivity, no reason. Let's just see how this plays out. Patience is built on a promise. The judge is coming back. We have something to wait for. That's not passivity. The prophets were patient because they knew the day of the Lord was coming. Job was steadfast because he knew the character of God to be compassionate and merciful. 
and must therefore, according to his character, set things right. The promise that we lean on, the reason for our patience is pure, wonderful justice. The final mending of all things. So we know that God is just. And then we also know, especially in 1 John, that God is love. Well, how does that work? Well, these are not two conflicting attributes of God's character. God's justice is not pitted against his love. He doesn't suspend his love when he stands in judgment. God is just because God is love. Love demands justice. He will right all the wrongs done to you, to your full and final satisfaction, because he loves you deeply. So that's our comfort. We are rich in Christ, no matter what the world throws at us, how they push us down. And Christ is coming back. I want to end by reading the lyrics of um, one of my favorite songs from Andrew Peterson. It's called Rise Up, and the band can come up while I read this. This is Peterson's reflection on the coming of the Lord with justice in his right hand. Every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall, every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl, the king of love one day will crush them all. And every sad seduction and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by. You will rise up in the end. I know the night is cruel, but the day is coming soon when you will rise up in the end. If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not the father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await the day of his return. And when the stars come crashing to the sea, when the high and mighty fall down on their knee, we'll see the sun descending in the sky. The chains of death will fall around your feet and you will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. I know you will. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your gift of all the riches of Christ, for Jesus himself. Nothing could be more precious to us than your son. And we long for that day of mending, fixing the broken things, of the wiping of the tears. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen.